Hello and welcome to the Voices from the Land, Indigenous Peoples Talk Language Revitalization Podcast, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Tansi, I'm your host, Gordon Spence, from the Tasquia Cree Nation in Northern Manitoba. I'm also the Indigenous Community Facilitator for the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Andrew Bomberry, a Mohawk from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. Andrew is a curriculum developer, writer, researcher, and teacher. Welcome. As part of the Legacy of Hope Foundation's mandate and mission, we are working to promote Indigenous languages revitalization as a critical step in the healing of generations of survivors and their communities from colonial policies and practices which rob Indigenous peoples of their first language. The goal of this project is to help support Indigenous languages reclamation through interviews with Indigenous language teaching experts. The target audience for this work are Indigenous language teachers. We hope that by sharing accessible podcast interviews with people doing interesting and relevant work on language promotion, we can help facilitate the sharing of knowledge, ideas, and practices that are relevant to the teaching and learning of Indigenous languages. While there are many contexts that are particular to specific nations and dialects within their regions, we are hoping to provide additional tools and platforms that can help with Indigenous language revitalization, despite the many differences, as part of our efforts to promote a discussion and reflection on the impacts of being able to express yourself in your traditional language, we are reaching out to speakers or others who can provide context and elaboration on the insights, values, worldviews, etc., that come along with being able to understand and express oneself in their own language. Our hope is that these interviews will help foster interest and action in those listening to pursue their original language or invigorate those who are teaching it to share these insights with their leaders, their learners, to further motivate and increase learner success. Today our guest is Brian Miracle. His Mohawk name is Owena Tega. Owena Tega is the co-founder of and instructor of Okwawena Kentayoka, an adult emergent program for the Mohawk of Kanyen Keha, language of Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. From Six Nations, Owenadega learned to speak Kanyen Keha as an adult, the director of the program. This is a later career of sorts for him. Originally, Owenadega started out in journalism, including being a radio host. He has written for the Global Mail, co-hosted a CBC radio program on Indigenous culture and issues. And he has written two books, both nonfiction. The first book is Work to Correct Stereotypes about Indigenous Peoples Struggling with Addictions. And the second book is a powerful personal narrative of his return to Six Nations after accomplishing much in the world of journalism. Upon returning to Six Nations, Owenadega began a journey to reclaim his Indigenous language. Not content to stop there, he co-founded Ongoa Wena Genti Ongwa in 1998. This is a full-time adult immersion language school, which has now been in operation for over 20 years. 
Well, good afternoon, Oena Tega. How are you today? And welcome to this Language Podcast Project. Hi, Gordon. Thank you very much for the invitation, the chance to talk about these things. Let me begin by, by applauding you for not being bashful or afraid to speak language that you don't know, because that's what the key of learning a second language is about, being fearless, not afraid to make a mistake and sound foolish in front of others. That's how we learn to speak a second language, by taking that, that bravery, really, and plowing ahead, even though you think you might be making a mistake. That's how we become speakers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to hand it over to uh, my co-host, Andrew, to begin with some questions and however you want to approach it. Andrew, go ahead. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks again, Juanadega, for being here. I was very uh, looking forward to having this conversation with you about the program and all of uh, the insights that you have to share. Starting from the top, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a bit about how the Adult Immersion Program that you'd co-founded, Ongwawana Gendiokwa, and how it came into being. Well, I moved back to the reserve in the early 90s and wanted to become a speaker because it's basically not possible when you live in a reserve. I mean, in in a city like I was, come back to the reserve and being surrounded by a few number of speakers. We didn't have many in those days and took classes. They were all night classes and wasn't really getting any anywhere. I took an immersion program six months in another Mohawk community and came away from that still not being able to speak. And but with an idea that I knew something about how the language was structured. I knew that there was something hidden within it that would help me become a speaker. But the programs that I'd been taking up to then weren't unlocking the key. They weren't showing me the secret. And it was thanks to a group here in the community, a Grand River Employment and Training that funded myself and, and one other person, my co-founder, who's now my wife, by the way, to actually study this and figure out a way of, of how we might do this, how we might create a program that would unlock this key. So in the early going, after doing a lot of studying, talking to people in all the Mohawk communities across New York and, and Ontario to say, well, what is it that you do and how do you teach and, and how is this done? I didn't get very far until I went and visited one of my former teachers, Gunnar Dewaku, whose English name is David Miracle. And I went into his office and he had all kinds of little bits and paper scattered all over his desk, big desk. He had dozens and dozens of these things. And I said, what do you got going here? And he, he says, well, look at this. And he pulls three pieces of paper together. He plops them up side by side. And he says, look, here we got the word. I have a nice car. And it's three different parts that I have in the, in the car. And I'm going, oh, wow, that's great. Okay. He says, now look, when I substitute this piece for this other piece, now it says, you have a nice car. Huh. And he says, now if I substitute this other piece for this other piece, he says, you now have a nice house. I'm going, wow. And I realized that if I, if I knew what all these bits and pieces that he were, was using, because if I understood them, and I knew how to assemble them, I would be able to speak the language. And these little pieces of paper, they weren't words by themselves. Sometimes they were only two letters long. And I knew that if I could, if I could learn those pieces 
and the rules for joining them together, I would become a speaker. And it was knowing that this key exists that was what allowed us to start planning and teaching a language that I didn't speak myself at the time. So I got that teacher to come to a classroom where I found students and money and put it together in one room thinking, okay, after a year, we're all going to be speakers. And it didn't quite work out that way. He was teaching half a day. And because I had the barest insights into how what was going on, I was teaching the other half a day or some speakers from the community. And after a year, this worked for myself and maybe one or two, one or two other people, but it didn't work for everybody else. And at the end of the year, people came up to me and said, oh, I'm going to take the program next year. I mean, what program? There's no program next year. I just organized this so I could become a speaker. And I was a beginning speaker. I wouldn't have a great speaker. I had a, I could say things and understand things, but I was just a beginning speaker. And these other people sort of pressured me and said, well, I want to take it. I want to take it. So we did it again. And the students did a little better. I came out a little better speaker. And people came up to me at the end of that year and said, I want to take it next September. And it just kept repeating itself and repeating itself. So we never intended to start a school, a continuing program. We just, I just did it because I wanted to become a speaker. And so it's sort of grown and evolved and we got better at it so that now most of our students who will finish our program, which is now two years long, are very, very good speakers. They can go all day long without using a word of English and talk about all kinds of things. And what's better, they can teach others to speak as well as they can. So we've got to the point now where our language loss at Six Nations has bottomed out. We have only maybe two first language speakers left, but they're elderly. They're not able to help. But we've got dozens of very competent second language speakers. And these people are, uh, many of them are not married. So many of them don't have children, but they are getting to the point. And we've got a couple of children who are now first language speakers because their parents spoke to them only in the language. And because they go to school and because they have television, they also speak English, so they're bilingual. So this is an enormous change, and it's the start of a real language rejuvenation here in the community. That is uh, quite a turnaround. Looking forward to hearing some of the, the details of what was learned on that journey to get to the point where people are becoming strong speakers. Well, it's a case that after we've been, this is now our 22nd year, I think it is, something like that. And over time, we just plowed ahead doing this thing. And over time, you make certain realizations. And that's that if you live in a community where there are only elderly speakers, no young speakers, the language is dying. It's just a matter of time before it's gone. And you also have to make the realization that in spite of the fact that maybe schools have been teaching it for decades, years and years and years, and in spite of the fact that there are all kinds of, of computer apps and um, things showing up on YouTube and TikTok and who knows where else, that computer apps and the schools are not going to save our language. These are things that can help save the language, but they will not help it. 
And the key to saving our language, and not just the idea that people have about saving languages, is pretty narrow. They want to be able to maybe, and their biggest dream is to create a speaker, but that's not enough. Really, we'll save our language is when we get to the day when an adult can raise a child to speak it as their first language. And that child can then teach their children. That's when we truly save the language so that the language then becomes the language in all corners of life, in all corners of the community. It's not just a thing that happens in school. And in that way, it is here. We've got a very, we've got a small community of speakers. We, we don't live next door to one another. But we don't work together. But when we get together, we just bump into one another at the bank or uh, at the cafe. Or we see each other at the arena. All that conversation takes place in the language. When we communicate with each other by text, by email, by telephone, it's all and only in the language. And so there's this little community, this little universe of young people in their 20s and 30s who are communicating only in English. And it's been that way for years. And it's in Mohawk. In Mohawk, only in Mohawk. So there's some people I haven't said a word of English to in years because we are all communicating. We can talk about what we're interested in, what we're doing, what, what we need entirely in the language. And that is going on right now. And a lot of it's invisible because it's taking place by email or by telephone or something like that. And because of COVID, not much in person these days, but it does. And these are people who uh, choose to speak the language and, and choose to sort of live two lives where they have an English life, which they share with shopkeepers and other friends and whatnot. And they have a Mohawk life, which they share with people who speak, who've learned to speak the language. It sounds like both an incredible accomplishment and also something that took a lot of hard work to achieve. Very curious to look at the parts of the program, I guess you could say, where this sort of uh, result is built up over these two years. Well, I sat down with my wife in 1999 to start running this program. And the idea that was very vague was to create a speaker. I didn't know what what that really meant. There, are, there is no blueprint for creating a speaker, a Mohawk speaker or a Cree speaker or any other kind of speaker. It doesn't, ex- and this is, I'm talking about adult speakers who speak English as their first language. A child learns from their parents if they are lucky enough to have parents that speak, and there's no plan there. The parent speaks to the child as natural as they would any parent, and they talk about all kinds of things, and the child develops a natural fluency in that language. But when you grow up speaking English, you have a different way of thinking. You have a way of thinking and looking at the world that has to be taken into account if you want to learn a second language, in this case, Mohawk. And what we had to do and develop over years is develop a way of teaching the language, a curriculum that allowed, that sort of built on your English basis and gradually introduced you to a way of expressing yourself that was easy. I I describe it as simple to complex. We start with the simplest form of the language, the simplest grammar, the simplest vocabulary, and grammar and vocabulary that allows you to say meaningful things, important things that allow you to describe 
you and your circumstances in a way that sort of facilitates conversation, that enables conversation. So you have to zero in on that as the way your entry point into the language. I figured I, I lucked out and found it the first thing I tried. It wasn't because of great planning or research. I just lucked out. I said, I'll try this. And it seemed that to fit the, fit the bill, and it did. We still use it 20 years later as the basis to talk about this. The language is incredibly complex. And that means that in order for you to, to be able to do it well, you should start at the simplest point and then gradually add complexities. No sense starting to start, start at the most complex point. And the thing is that long words aren't necessarily hard to learn and short words aren't necessarily easy. So a long word, and I give the example that some long words are much easier to, to say and understand and to use than a short word. And that's because a long word will come off like a word like, that's a word meaning someone and I have a car together. My wife and I have a car. Okay. You go, wow, that's a mouthful. But that's an easier word to learn than yonske. That's just two syllables. Yonske. I don't know how many syllables that is. That's only three grammatical elements. Just three grammatical elements. And a word like yonske, two syllables, that's five grammatical elements in two syllables. So that means you can learn that one word. And yonske means I'll go there again. All right. So one is short, but it doesn't, it isn't easy to, to be able to, to modify that to say, you will go there again, or I went there again, or I didn't go there again. So it's not easy to manipulate, but is easy to manipulate. There's very few things you can do to it because it's only three grammatical elements. That's one thought. The other thought is that so-called easy things, simple things, are not easy to talk about in Mohawk. One of the first things I wanted to say in Mohawk was to say, I went for a walk. What could be more common than that? I went for a walk. But that's a mouthful. It's like 11 syllables long. I went for a walk. It's not 11 syllables long, but it's maybe seven. It's got about seven grammatical elements. It's very complicated to put together because when we're putting these elements together, they have to take the right form. They have to put, be put in the right sequence. And they have to be, oftentimes when they're joined together, they have to be modified to fit with one another. So there's a lot of little parts and pieces that must be learned in order for you to say what you want to say. And so what we're doing is that we're enabling people to put these little bits and pieces together to say what they want to say. And that's the key to what we do. We teach these bits and pieces of meaning rather than a whole word. We don't teach whole words. So, is this the root word method? Yes. This is the root words the linguists call morphemes. We call them root words. We assemble these root words together. And I remember in our second year of teaching, I had a student, we had lunch together, and he said to me, I said, I taught them that word, pass it to me. Then he said, I heard that and I'm going, I never heard that word before, but I understood immediately what it meant. And he said, pass me the little pieces of meat. And I go, what? I look around in front of me, and there's a little jar of bacon bits in front of me. 
I go, what the heck? Yeah, okay. I pass them the bacon bits. And that's the word I use to describe bacon bits to this day. I've never heard it anywhere else, but it makes perfect sense. And he figured out how to say that. I never told him, but he figured out how to say that on his own. So that's what understanding the, the little bits and meaning in our words can do if you understand how to assemble them and what they are. Because that little bit oftentimes doesn't look anything like the whole word it come from. So that's the key to it. And the other key to that is uh, having a program that is long-term and full-time. No one is going to be able to learn one of our Ongohui languages in a night class or on a summer camp or on a weekend program or something like that. No. People who uh, know about this stuff say that it will take an English speaker, a highly motivated English speaker, about 600 classroom hours to learn a language that's like French or Spanish, which is very close to English. They're related. So it's very easy to learn one of those languages because it only takes 600 hours. That's a long time. But after 600 hours, you can be a highly proficient speaker of one of these languages. And it takes 900 hours to 1,000 hours for German, 15 to 1,800 hours for Russian, and Arabic and Japanese, over 2,000 hours. And so our language is probably just as complicated as any of these, as Arabic or Korean, some of those things. And we're in that neighborhood. We take 1,800 hours as our program length now. And it gets us, our people to a very high level. Yeah. I think I recall reading before the Foreign Service or something agency in the U.S. when they're preparing diplomats to go overseas, they have a rating scale for languages to English. And basically, if your first language is English, then these other ones are going to be easier or more difficult based on your first language being English. Right. And so I guess if people from Six Nations end up uh, speaking English as their first name, it may end up actually presenting a greater challenge to learning Mohawk because it's going to be so different from the language that they're picking up as their first language. Right. So if the goal is just to teach language, teach people their colors, their numbers, names of animals and forth, so forth, okay, sure. You're going to have a, a night class for a winter and you're good. But if you want them to speak all day long without using English, and to be able to communicate with an old timer, you got to spend a lot of time, thousands of hours. That means, and if you're going to take uh, a night class, one night a week like people do, I want to do the math, 150 times, uh, it's, we're talking way over maybe 12, 15 years of one night a week for three hours, 15 years. Nobody's got that length of time. So it's full time. Our students that we have in our program right now, before COVID, they're in class six hours a day, five days a week. It's 900 hours a year. And we take two years. We are trying to get a third year off the ground because even though our students are at a very high level, we know we could take them higher yet because their language is just a teeny bit shy. You know, they're just lacking a teeny bit of polish. And so that's what we want to do is get a third year program going. Has there been uh, an increase in the uh, number of Mohawk speakers in your community over the, let's say, over the last 10 years? Oh, yeah. Like I said, we haven't done surveys of speakers, but I think we probably got 50 speakers 
who are speaking at a high level who can go like basically all day long, no English. And 25 years ago, when we first started, we had maybe 20 speakers. They were first language speakers, but they basically have all died out. They all passed away. So we've got many more speakers. And the fact is because these people are in their 20s and 30s and 40s, they're out and about. They're talking in the cafes. They're uh, talking in public meetings. Uh, they're writing posters, putting up posters. They're putting stuff on YouTube. The language is much more visible, much more audible, and it's really made an impact on the community. Some of our graduates have uh, got together and started an immersion school in the language, and there's now 60 students attending that. So they learn all their curriculum in the language. And the teachers from that are all from our program. Graduates from our program started a Mohawk speaking longhouse, which is our cultural and spiritual center. And all of the doings in that take place in the language. And the speakers are from the program. Most of the people attending are from the program. Uh, That's been going on. So there's been a tremendous impact on the community. And one of the things that a community has to be aware of in order to do this is that if we want to save the language, we have to focus on young adults. We have to enable them to become speakers so that they can teach their children that they haven't had yet. And that means a young adult will often have financial responsibilities. They need to be supported. It means they need to be paid. And night classes, students aren't paid. So students have to be paid full-time for two years. So this is a tremendous cost to the community to do this. And that's something that Six Nations has done for 20 years now. We've had no government funding for our program. We got a couple of, we've had maybe two or three small grants that did tiny little projects. Our teaching program has not been supported by the government at all in 20 years. So the community has to be prepared to support it for decades to do this. And because the government does not make that a priority. Is the immersion school, is it within the regular school system? Is it part of the regular school system or is it separate? And uh, what grades do the students start at? Like, is a, is a language taught from kindergarten and on? We have elementary schools in the community. And we got a couple of schools that, up until now, we had schools that teach the language in the schools. But they're not, kids come out of there, uh, they know their numbers, they know their colors, they can't talk. Okay. And things are starting to change with this new school that they that our grads made or built a little while ago. But our program is for adults only. It's a small school because it costs a lot to support these students to attend. Right now, we've got 18 students, 11 in the first year, seven in the second year. And it's independent. We are completely independent. We just do whatever we feel is right. We've had to figure out everything on our own because we're not we have no plan to follow no blueprint so we've done this all on our own and we've had to um we make a a guess as to what's needed and we go for it and if it works out great if it doesn't we figure out what could be better what should we do differently and so it's constantly trial and error and if you learn from your mistakes you can you can go places and so that's what that's what we've done and the other thing is that it's an immersion program, so there's no English from day one, from minute one, no English. You can't 
teach people to seek a, speak a second language if they're still hanging on to their English, if they're using English as the basis for understanding and speaking the language, because that's their crutch and they'll never break free of it. So you got to give them a way of looking at and understanding the world through Mohawk and not English. So do you use like pictures to express words? We, we, yeah, we use, we use whatever it takes. We use pictures, we use charades, we use actions. Yeah. And pictures are a big part of it. And in the early going for the first month or two of the first month, maybe two months of the program, students do not use pencils. There's no writing, no pencils. They use their ears. They've got to develop an ear for the language. So it's all in the language spoken and they've got to listen and, and go along with it. And that's one of the things that is difficult for some people. Some people have a, are very resistant to proceeding in a language if they don't understand what something means in English. So we'll tell them something and try to demonstrate what it means. We'll act it out. We'll draw a diagram. And most people will get it, but a few people don't get it. And they just resist going any further without knowing what it means in English. And uh, we're just as resistant to saying, giving it to them in English. So we tell people at the beginning, you got to be open to this approach that you go with it and eventually it'll make sense. And when it does make sense, it'll make sense within a Mohawk context, which will be different from the English context. That's one thing that holds some people back is not being able to jump in there and do that. But for most people, it works. I saw from uh, reviewing information about the course that you use the American Council for the Teaching of Foreign Languages Oral Proficiency Interviews. I was just wondering how you bring that in for the um, annual proficiency assessments. Yeah. Before we, people start in first year, we, we interview them on the first day to see just how much they, language they do know. And they will, uh, most of them people don't know very much at all. And that's fine. You don't have to learn or know an awful lot to get into our program. We test them on that first day and their speaking ability is very, very, very low. And then we, we interview them again at the end of that first year, at the end of the second year, and it'll give an assessment as to how far people have progressed. And to simplify the active fill system, they grade it in basically three levels, novice, intermediate, and advanced. And a novice level speaker is somebody who communicates with words. They can name things. They can name their animals. They can name colors and whatnot. But they have no functional speaking ability. They can name things. That's it. People at the intermediate level can speak in sentences. They can put sentences together. And people at the advanced level speak in paragraphs. They can speak a sentence, but they can elaborate on it. They can explain it. They can talk about the background to it. They can go into detail about it. Whereas an intermediate level speaker can just spit out a sentence and understand a sentence, but not much more. So that's the three basic levels of that active system. And our people finish at that advanced level. Most of our second year people finish with the advanced level speaker. It works for um, assessing with the Mohawk language? Yep. One thing I'll add to this too is that because this has attracted the attention of a lot of other people, a lot of other places, 
And people are always asking us, hey, how do you do that? We explain it to them. We talk about our curriculum and our sister languages. Mohawk is one of the six nations. Our sister languages are all keen to do this, with one exception. And so we have given them their, our curriculum. They've translated it into their languages. And like four of those languages are now teaching their languages using our curriculum. If you look at their textbook and our textbook, exactly the same. It's just that they use their languages. So they're teaching their adults in using our curriculum to get basically the same results. But they haven't had that anywhere near the history. So they got to develop some history at this, develop some experience at teaching with this kind of circumstance, all day immersion and so forth. So they still got a little bit of catching up. But I watched the Senecas watch their graduation about three years ago after their first year program. And I looked at them and listened to them, to their students who were speaking at that intermediate level. And I was impressed because I thought this saved those people 10 years. They cut 10 years off the length of time it took our program to get to the point that those kids were then. So that was very good. Okay, I see. My other question is your method or your curriculum would it work in, let's say, teaching Cree or Ojibwe or, or another completely different language? I think it would because all of the languages in North America are what the linguists call polysynthetic. They're all made of very complex verbal descriptions that are composed of little bits and pieces, root words. And so if you understood the root words in your language, understood how they're joined, what are the rules that govern how they're joined together, what sequence do these bits and pieces have to be assembled in? If you understood all that, you could do the same thing. And we've had meetings with people from all over the country about this thing. And we now have a group in Southern Vancouver Island that are teaching the language there using the same principles. They can't use our curriculum, but they're using the same principles. They've got people there that understand the bits and pieces of their language and that they're not teaching whole words they're teaching little bits and pieces in order to start creating speakers in their community. That's fantastic. So yeah, this is really a, it's a real game changer. Now in lots of places where the language is still strong or stronger than, than ours, where you've got young people speaking it, well, the language needs there are different. Uh, so this takes place or uh, is, is really um, useful in places where, there's only elderly speakers, but where there's still places where kids are going to school speaking the language, different needs. And so if you wouldn't mind, what would you say would be uh, successful strategies for students engaged in this immersion? What are you seeing as the students that do well that succeed? Well, I'm just talking about our program where we've got an established program where you can see progress being made. And uh, a lot of people go, go to language programs with this burning desire to become a speaker. And the program is not effective. It's not getting results. And so it doesn't matter how, how committed you are as a student in that circumstance. If you don't have an effective program that creates results, you're not going to get very far yourself. It doesn't matter how effective, uh, great a teacher you are. If you don't have a program that will take you from zero to speaker, you're not going to get too far. So when you're into our kind of a program, it still takes a special student to succeed. And that means 
somebody who is fearless, like Gordon, who won't be afraid to try and tackle a mouthful of, of letters and make a stab at trying to say that and to take that attitude and use it all day long. The other thing is to be not just sitting back waiting to be asked a question. Don't be reactive. Put it out there. Start using the language. And this is something that uh, works against us as Ongongongwe people. You know, we've been beaten down for hundreds of years to the point that we are wallflowers. We don't say anything and we don't express ourselves. We don't teach our children to express ourselves. So kids go to school, kids grow up with having nothing to say about themselves, their their life, and without that ability to articulate or their feelings and their experience and their history, if they don't have experience speaking English, they're going to have a darn tough time learning to speak any other language. So that's one of the things that we've experienced that people come in there with a great desire to speak, but if they've been so repressed through their own personal situation or the community situation, they've got a really tough time breaking out of that. So that's one of the things that works against us. For communities that are struggling with the language issue, uh, recognizing the fact that their community is slipping away from speaking their language and they want to do some language revitalization in their community, what kind of advice would you have for communities that are starting out with trying to develop a language program to reclaim their language? Well, a community has to be prepared for this long-term commitment. A community's got to be prepared to start taking chances like we did. We were just a couple of kids. Not yet. I wasn't a kid in those days, but people who didn't really know anything. And people entrusted us with this opportunity to do this. And it worked out. And so people have to be uh, likewise trusting of people who are committed and who work hard and are taking chances. And yet, At the same time, they also got to be doing it on the understanding that we're looking for results. And if you don't get results, you got to have a darn good explanation or reason about why something didn't work and what will fix it the next time out. That's one thing, attitude, and that commitment to financially support that program for decades. Oh, and the other thought is that to be mindful of the fact that what we're talking about here with this root word approach is a completely different way of understanding and using the language compared to first language speakers, people who grew up speaking the language. Because I've, I've done little workshops in other communities explaining what we do, and there's been a mix of young people and older people who are speakers, and they explain what we do, and I give demonstrations and little diagrams and show how this works. And at the end of it, all the young people are going, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. I want to take that program. I know I'll be a speaker. That's great. And the old people there who are speakers say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. That's crazy. That makes no sense at all. They got no time for it. So a community with that mix of people, and most communities do have that mix of people, they got to, people have to be aware that old timers who speak it as their first language don't know what a young person needs to know. They have no idea what a young person needs to know in order to begin speaking the language. The people who are really going to help 
these young beginners are second language speakers, people who basically taught themselves to do this and who were using these methods to try and help people with this completely foreign method. Thank you. I guess a last question would be for anyone listening to this, uh, hearing about the root word method and the other things you've unpacked, are there any resources or recommendations that you would suggest for people to look further into these things if they thought it might be relevant to them? I wish there was a website that was called rootwords.com. There isn't. You know, you could go to spend four years at university studying linguistics. You won't learn it there either. Okay. This is something that in order for other communities to do what we've done here, you have to have a good list of these root words compiled in like dictionary format. You have to have somebody who knows and understands what the whole word is, what the root word in it is, and they have to know what the rules are for joining these pieces together. So it's that resource of a root word list and somebody who knows it inside out. That's where linguists can help by explaining that connection. They can explain that. They shouldn't teach it, mind you, but they should, they can explain it to somebody who will teach it. And then uh, it really takes a, a, a young person who is committed to doing this and to investing every waking moment to sort of trying to unlock how the language works and figure it out so that they can then impart that, that knowledge and that understanding to others. I have one more question, maybe two. Do you teach uh, Mohawk online? We have an online program, and we use root words to teach it with. Yeah. The online program is just a carbon copy of our classroom program. Is it open to anybody who might want to learn Mohawk? And is there a cost? Yeah, there is a cost because we're not government-funded. We have an online program, and it is open to anybody. We're not trying to lock our language into a little box that only a small number of people can speak. We want the rest of Canada, the rest of the world, to be able to speak our language. And so we're very open about sharing it so that more people can speak it with us. So right now, we've got 76 students in our online program. We only have 18 people in our classroom program. Half of these 76 people are non-Ungwumwe people. We've got people in South America, Europe, Asia, that have been taking the language program. The member of Indigenous Services for Parliament is an online student, Mark Miller. Yeah. Is there, okay, what's the link if somebody wanted to get on your online course? What is the contact information? Okonline at gmail.com. Okay. Okay, my last question is, as a person who never spoke your Aboriginal or your Indigenous language, your Native language, whatever you want, whatever word you want to use, and you learned... Mohawk, you learned your language over time. Did you see the world in a different way after you've learned to speak Mohawk? When you once you learn the language, you'll learn that if you're looking through the world differently, you see the world differently because you see that Mohawk values and all Ongohoi languages, they value some things more importantly than other things. They regard some things in their language as less important than they are in English. That's the same thing with our language. There are certain things that are very important, which are completely irrelevant in English. And there are some things in English that are unimportant in English, but are very important in our language. So it's it works both ways. So now you come to regard what was 
really important to our way of thinking and looking at the world with our Mohawk eyes. When you shift to English, you got to shift back to another way of thinking and looking at the world and describing your place in it. Excellent. Well said. We've been talking to Brian Merkel, also known as... Um, Owanadeka. Owanadeka. I tossed my paper there for a minute. Thank you very much, Owanadeka, for joining us today on our Indigenous Languages podcast project. Your contribution to our project is significant and adds a big value to it. We thank you again for taking the time to be with us today to talk about your language program. Thank you very much. What kwanuwaladu ize nenese watunde. Ayaonsji onze wayat degenha. Thanks for the invitation to talk about this. I hope this helps. Thank you.